ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It is Thursday the 8th of February. I'm Sally Sara coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Today, calls for calm. The daughter of a Queensland grandmother who was allegedly stabbed to death speaks out over fears of vigilantism. And are cars becoming too smart? Consumer advocates say some new Toyota vehicles will be able to collect personal data. Over time, we'll need to be thinking more and more carefully about who you're dealing with in in buying a car and can you trust them with everything about what you do in, in the car, maybe what you say in the car. The daughter of a Queensland grandmother, Vileen White, who was allegedly stabbed to death, is calling for calm and unity amid fears of vigilantism. Ms White was killed on Saturday in a shopping centre car park in Ipswich. One teenager has been charged with murder. Four others have been charged with unlawful use of a motor vehicle. Now Ms White's daughter is joining leaders of the African community to call for peace as community tensions rise. Elizabeth Cramsey reports. Less than a week after tragedy rocked the White family, there was a display of unity today. I just want to say, apart from our family being torn apart from the heart, um, Mum's legacy will live on in peace. We are... She, one of her things, even with family fights, and not as normal families do, her thing was pursue peace with all diligence. Cindy White's mother, Vileen, was killed in an alleged violent attack at the weekend. Five teenagers between the ages of 15 and 16 have been arrested in relation to the incident. One has been charged with murder. After fears of vigilantism, Cindy White has joined leaders of the African community to call for unity. She was never one to be prejudiced. She was, you know, you know, always look for the best in people. And I think the thing is, people come to Australia, it's a land of opportunity. And my dad come from Malta. Um, you know, we've got different nationalities in here. We've all come for a better life, you know, to provide for our families, to escape horrors and unimaginable things. Standing by her side was Benny Boll, the president of the Queensland African Communities Council. He paid tribute to Vileen White. She was a leader in the community, a devoted Christian. She donated to many charities around the world, including in Africa, helping young people and poor communities. The best way we can honour her legacy is for us to preach peace, unity, justice and accountability. At a time when division is threatening to take hold, he asked for peace. We have seen everywhere around the world countries where leaders and institutions have failed to accommodate their cultural diversity. And we cannot, we cannot afford that here in Australia, whatever the case. We need to work together. We need to send a message out there that hate has no place here. Racism has no place here. 
Bill Potts is the former president of the Queensland Law Society. It is only natural that people are both fearful and angry in equal measure. Now, the difficulty is, of course, is that uh, if we go to the, the law of the jungle, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, uh, we all end up without teeth and we all end up blind. He says in many cases vigilantes make more work for police. They, they think that they're somehow helping or they're somehow deterring crime. In fact, more, more often than not, they're committing crimes themselves. Uh, they end up uh, messing up quite often the evidentiary and investigative uh, trails that the police are following. Bill Potts stresses the dangers of Queenslanders taking the law into their own hands. If they try and perform a citizen's arrest or uh, try and uh, blockade someone in their own house, they may well find themselves being uh, uh, injured or, or harmed. So uh, let's trust the police. Let's rely on uh, our community spirit rather than simply anger. That's the former president of the Queensland Law Society, Bill Potts, ending that report from Elizabeth Cramsey. Well, technology has made life easier for many of us, but it's also made some employees feel as if they should be available 24-7. But that's about to change when the right to disconnect laws pass the federal parliament. The new laws will give workers the legal right to ignore work emails, phone calls and text messages outside of paid working hours. Unions say it's a fantastic step forward for workers' rights, but industry groups are worried that the legislation is confusing for employers. Rachel Hayter reports. On their daily walking commute in inner Sydney, there's consensus among these people a legal right to disconnect from work is a good idea. I'm a big advocate for not doing something if you're not getting paid for it. I think that's a good idea just for a bit of work-life balance and I believe like work should be like nine to five. If those are your hours, that's how it should stay. After work hours, I also need some time for myself to take care of my own mental health and also I need some time to do some physical exercises. With more and more people working from home, the boundaries between work and not work are really becoming blurred. There used to be clear separation, now it's not. To me, that's what good leadership is, is thinking about your people. The federal government's sweeping industrial relations laws set to pass the Senate later today include a right to disconnect, preventing employees from being disadvantaged for not answering calls, texts or emails outside of work hours. It's welcome reform for the Secretary of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, Sally McManus. It's a really fantastic step forward for all workers in Australia and it's the first time that they'll have this right. She explains how the legislation would look in practice. It gives the worker the strong right in the first place and then it's um, up to the employer, you know, if they don't think that that's fair enough and they can't negotiate something that's fair enough they then would go the independent umpire for them to make the decision. That umpire is the Fair Work Commission, who would determine what's reasonable in the circumstances. In determining what's reasonable, it actually says you've got to take into account things like, are you being paid? So if you're getting an on-call allowance, I think you know, the chances of it being found to be reasonable is high because that's what you're being paid for, how much you're being paid. So obviously, if you're in a really high paid job, part of that extra money that you'll get weighing way above the um, minimum or the industry average is for compensate for those type of things. But industry says there hasn't been enough consultation. 
Luke Akterstraat is the CEO of COSBOA, the Council of Small Business Organisations Australia. I find it quite heavy-handed. I think it's not the right way to approach this issue. I think coming out of COVID, there's been some good conversations about flexibility, about working from home. And I feel this is a bit of a, a one-size-fits-all approach and probably legislating something that really doesn't need to be legislated. He's worried businesses are confused by the reform. I think it's going to create a lot of fear, and it already has amongst employers who will be thinking about, well, how is this going to work in practice? You know, a lot of workplaces operate across different time zones, particularly with the West Coast and the East Coast of Australia. So practically, what does that mean about contacting colleagues who might be in different time zones. The Australian Industry Group has warned a right to disconnect would also harm productivity. Chris F. Wright is an Associate Professor of Work and Organisational Studies from the University of Sydney, who specialises in workers' rights. He believes the opposite is true. It's going to make people feel more motivated for their jobs. Those boundaries can become a bit more a bit more firm and that's going to be good for, uh, for productivity and, and things like staff shortages because it seems that these trends have also contributed to staff turnover. That's Associate Professor Chris Wright from the University of Sydney ending that report from Rachel Hayter. Pressure is building on the federal government to take action after a union-backed inquiry into price gouging found Australians were being overcharged for pretty much everything. Former Australian Competition and Consumer Commission leader Alan Fells found sectors including energy, supermarkets and childcare were guilty of adding to cost of living pressures. The government has its own investigations underway, but some won't be complete until next year. Angus Randall reports. It's been a growing feeling over the past few years. Why is everything so expensive? Professor Alan Fell's report into price gouging paints a poor picture of Australia's business sector. The former Australian Competition and Consumer Commissioner hopes it will spark real change. The government is talking about having a serious national competition policy. Great. But it's usually pretty tough going. They'll have to prove their real dinkum about it and tackle some of these difficult problems to make consumers and the economy better off. The 80-page report commissioned by the Australian Council of Trade Unions looks into the pricing practices of several sectors, including aviation, banks and the supermarkets. It found businesses were exploiting their market power to boost profits, costing customers and driving up inflation. The government is already investigating. Last week, it announced an ACCC investigation into supermarket pricing and competition, which will deliver its report in a year's time. Minister for Skills and Training Brendan O'Connor says the government will take Alan Fell's 35 recommendations on board. Look, I've got enormous regard for Alan. What he says in these areas, particularly around consumer protection and competition, are really important and we, and we listen to him. As you know, we've actually uh, we've asked uh, a former minister, Dr Craig Emerson, to look at these matters, look at whether in fact uh, there's been um, sufficient competition or whether there's been uh, un unfair uh, hiking of prices at a time when inflation is too high. Uh, we need to do more there. We need to make sure there's sufficient competition. Alongside the ACCC inquiry and Craig Emerson's review into the Food and Grocery Code of Conduct, there's also a Senate inquiry underway into supermarket price gouging. Coles and Woolworths say they're happy to cooperate. Alan Fells says these major investigations can make a difference. The voluntary code they have at the moment doesn't have any effect. It needs to be made a compulsory code. The ACCC inquiry 
will get to the bottom of allegations about overcharging, uh, increasing profits during COVID and after that. Nationals leader David Littleproud wants the government to move faster. When there's evidence, clear evidence around price gouging, we saw that with meat prices where farm grade price dropped by 60-70% in June, yet the checkout price only dropped by 8%. Someone was cleaning up and it was the supermarkets. They put pressure uh, all the way down through the supply chain. And, and what Alan Fels has said in his inquiry is that we need to have more ACCC price investigations where there's clear evidence. Professor Catherine Backholer is from the Global Centre for Preventative Health and Nutrition at Deakin University. She says in the short term, the government can offer more support to the most vulnerable. In terms of social safety supports, um, income supports, Australia ranks you know, right down the bottom in terms of OECD countries, in terms of the amount they provide for low-income Australians. So I think we can do that, but we also need to address what the supermarkets are doing and make sure that they, they are offering uh, fair prices. We know that the prices went up during COVID and there were various reasons why that's the case, but they haven't come down. The ACCC inquiry into supermarket prices will deliver an interim report by August. The final report is due by February next year. That's Angus Randall. You're listening into The World Today. PNG Prime Minister James Marape has made a historic address to a joint sitting of federal parliament in Canberra this morning. Mr Marape is the first Pacific leader to be afforded the honour. The PNG Prime Minister is facing domestic political challenges after riots in the capital Port Moresby last month. He's also navigating bilateral ties with China after signing a security agreement with Australia at the end of last year. I spoke a short time ago with the ABC's foreign affairs reporter Stephen Jedgetts. Stephen, good afternoon. Prime Minister Marape focused on the history between Australia and PNG. What was he trying to achieve with that? I think the Prime Minister feels, uh, rightly or wrongly, that perhaps the historic links between Australia and Papua New Guinea are underappreciated in both countries. Of course, it's worth remembering that we'll have a, a historic milestone next year, 50 years since Australia granted PNG its independence and PNG became a truly independent nation. And James Marape's point was that this was something that might not have happened as peacefully or as easily as it did. Uh, in other words, he pointed to other examples around the world where uh, colonial powers have found themselves torn down. In contrast, he said, with Australia, the flag was lowered rather than torn down. Uh, and he paid tribute to Australian political leaders, particularly Gough Whitlam, for their willingness to do that, saying that they, they birthed a nation. Uh, he also, of course, dwelt on the historic links between the two countries during World War II, when Australia and PNG essentially conducted a, uh, a furious, vicious and often difficult campaign against the, the Japanese. But still a, a story that Mr Marape thought needed to be told time and time again to remind people of the, uh, the way that those shared bonds of sacrifice have grown over time. And Stephen, did James Marape make any reference to the civil unrest in PNG which unfolded a few weeks ago or the, the brewing strategic competition in the region? 
He did, but uh, only obliquely, particularly when it comes to strategic competition. He did make a slightly clearer reference uh, to some of the unrest we've seen in Papua New Guinea recently. Listeners, of course, might remember that it was only a month or so ago that Port Moresby was very sadly once again gripped by unrest, uh, violence and looting which saw at least 15 people killed and large numbers of businesses torched. This has happened before in Papua New Guinea and uh, Prime Minister Marape's main message was not to as he put it, give up on Papua New Guinea. He also described Australia and Papua New Guinea as joined at the hip, which was an interesting phrase to use, saying that as close neighbours, the two countries had no other option other than to get on and to try and forge a united future together. We were cut out from the same democratic cloth. One can choose friends, but one is stuck with family forever. (laughs) One is stuck with family forever. Our two countries are stuck with each other. We have no choice but to get along. That's the PNG Prime Minister James Marape there. And Stephen Jedgett's uh, Anthony Albanese and also the opposition leader welcomed Mr Marape to the House. What did they have to say? Well, interestingly, Peter Dutton waded into slightly contentious territory. Um, China is, of course, in many ways the elephant in the room with visits like this, and we know that China has been pressing to sign a security agreement with Papua New Guinea, uh, something Australia does not want to see and which PNG's foreign minister ruled out earlier this week uh, in an interview with the ABC. But uh, Peter Dutton, whilst not mentioning China, did talk a lot about, quote, emboldened autocrats who were, quote, offering carrots and sticks. Uh, to countries in the region. That seemed like a very, very thinly veiled reference to Beijing. Anthony Albanese, by contrast, was a little bit more cautious in his language, stressing again the shared historical bonds between PNG and Australia. That's the ABC's foreign affairs reporter Stephen Jedgetts there. Israel's Prime Minister says there will be no pause in the onslaught on Gaza, having rejected a deal for a ceasefire proposed by Hamas as delusional. Benjamin Netanyahu says the Israeli military will instead push ahead into southern Gaza, the last Hamas stronghold, where most of Gaza's population has fled seeking safety. But the US insists there's still hope that an agreement can be reached. Jacqueline Breen reports. It's four months and one day since the massacre on October 7, when Israel says 1,200 people were killed by Hamas and around 250 taken hostage. It's also four months to the day since Israel's furious response began. And according to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, it will continue. This evening I want to tell you one thing. We're on the path of total victory. The Prime Minister's rejected a deal proposed by Hamas and mediated by the US, Qatar and Egypt for a four and a half month ceasefire and the exchange of hostages and prisoners. If Hamas survives in Gaza, it's only a matter of time until the next massacre. Only a total victory will allow us to restore security in Israel, both in the north and the south. It's not what many of the families of the remaining hostages were desperate to hear, like Steve Brisley, whose brother-in-law is still captive. The phrase life and death is, is thrown around about all kinds of things. It is literally the case here. Now is the time to secure the deal. The categorical rejection of the deal is being seen as another rebuke of Israel's closest ally, the US, and the efforts of Secretary of State Antony Blinken. But he isn't conceding defeat. What I can tell you about these discussions is that while there are some clear non-starters in Hamas's response, 
uh, we do think it creates space for agreement to be reached. And we will work at that relentlessly until we get there. In Gaza, the death toll has passed 27,000 people, according to the Hamas-run health ministry. In Khan Yunus in the south, this doctor stands beside the body of a woman on a stretcher covered by a blanket in the Al-Amal hospital. She's 77 years old. She came to the hospital three months ago due to a stroke. Ten days ago, she came down with severe pneumonia and she needed special treatment and oxygen. The last oxygen tank ran out yesterday. The United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres says an Israeli push further south to the border town of Rafah would exponentially increase what's already a humanitarian nightmare. The situation in Gaza is a festering wound on our collective conscience that threatens the entire region. We don't really understand what it means, complete victory. Akiva Elder is a commentator with Israel's Haaretz newspaper. But what I can say is that he cannot uh, allow himself, and uh, I think that uh, otherwise it would be considered a political suicide, that the Hamas will declare victory. He says the remaining hostages are a vital part of Hamas's leverage and the only hope its leaders have of getting themselves out of Gaza alive. And he says Benjamin Netanyahu remains focused too on his own political survival. It's uh, sacrificing maybe his own political life uh, in return for and saving the lives of uh, 100, uh, hopefully more, Israelis who were betrayed by him and his government exactly four months ago, on October 7th, they were betrayed. Their families feel that they've been betrayed every day since. That's Israeli commentator Akiva Eldar ending that report from Jacqueline and Breen. Consumer group Choice has issued a privacy warning over new Toyota vehicles. An investigation has found that smart technologies are collecting extensive consumer data, which could be passed on to debt collectors or insurance companies. Alexandra Humphreys filed this report. Queensland man Matt paid nearly $70,000 for a brand new Toyota Hilux last year, but he got more than he bargained for. The car had a new technology called Connected Services. It set off alarm bells for the long-time Toyota customer. The more I looked into it, you know, the way that uh, Toyota can log into your car remotely, uh, keep a record of, you know, all sorts of bits and pieces and possibly share your driving behaviour with your insurance company. Um, You know, I just sort of thought that the whole lot outweighed the benefits, if you know what I mean. Matt asked for the technology to be removed, but was told that would void the warranty. So Matt cancelled his order. He doesn't believe this type of technology should be forced on consumers. It'd be really good if you could make it an optional. You know, I see some people who probably like it, but I think there's an awful lot of people who wouldn't like it. Consumer advocate Choice has now investigated. Rafi Alam is the group's senior campaigns and policy advisor. A Choice investigation found that Toyota and other car companies can collect extensive personal data on customers through smart connectivity features. Um, We also looked into um, Toyota's privacy policy and found that they are able to share this data with third parties, which include um, organisations like debt collectors and insurance agencies. Toyota is one of Australia's biggest car brands. So what kind of information is the company collecting? So when we looked at Toyota's privacy policy, we found that these connect services features 
will collect data such as fuel levels, odometer readings, vehicle location and driving data, um, as well as personal information like phone numbers and uh, email addresses. In a statement, Toyota said it takes customer privacy seriously and the connected services packages offer safety, security and convenience features. The company said standard practice is to inform customers about the features as part of the sales contract. It says customers can opt out by having a SIM inside the car disconnected, although that will impact other features like Bluetooth and speaker functionality. David Vale is the chairman of the Australian Privacy Foundation. Unfortunately, this is becoming very common that um, particularly large multinational firms that uh, get hold of your data or need it for one purposes, uh, one purpose, uh, work out ways of exploiting it or you know, meeting whatever interest they might have. David Vale argues Australia needs more robust privacy protections for consumers. Over time, we'll need to be thinking more and more carefully about you know, who you're dealing with in, in buying a car and um, can you trust them with everything about what you do in, in the car, maybe what you say in the car, who's in the car, where it goes, your connections to every other online data service. If you can't trust them, then maybe you shouldn't be dealing with that particular firm. That's David Vale from the Australian Privacy Foundation ending that report from Alexandra Humphreys. And that's all from the World Today team. Thanks for your company. I'm Sally Sara. Stay safe. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Living in Australia, we know there's a lack of competition. Two big supermarkets, two big airlines and just a few more banks and electricity providers. And we know because of that, well, we get ripped off. Today, investigative journalist Adele Ferguson on how big companies trick us into paying more and how we can stop them. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.